Bill, you do a great job. How about worship this morning? My God, I don't know about you. I don't know what it sounds like back there. But man, up front here, I think Jesus met me in a profound way this morning. I was weeping and that uh, tremble song, my goodness. Uh, wow, thank you, worship team. I mean, there's just nothing, right? Come on, come on, put your hands together for the worship team. We really are spoiled here at Hilltop Church. We really are. I don't know. I mean, part of me doesn't even want to speak about what I've prepared. Part of me just wants to speak about what happened to me on the front row. But that would be a giant disservice to Jesus, I think. Although it would be a great testimony for Jesus. Um, there's something else that's actually happening today. Uh, Palm Sunday. Yeah, Palm Sunday. The, the Sunday before Jesus is going to uh, be crucified and arrested and, and, and he, before he uh, raises from the dead, we celebrate this thing that happens called uh, Palm Sunday. Uh, if you're unfamiliar uh, with the significance of Palm Sunday, um, it's a day in which we commemorate and celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Um, we know this uh, biblical story as the triumphal entry. It's not necessarily known as, in the Bible anyways, Palm Sunday. It's known as the triumphal entry. But Palm Sunday marks the beginning of Holy Week. It's actually the final week of Lent. How many have enjoyed the fast? Raise your hand. Liars. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. No. In the simplest terms, Palm Sunday is an opportunity for us, the church, to reflect upon the final week of Jesus' life. It's pretty remarkable when you think about it. It is really remarkable that even the worship in which we gave Jesus, our God, this morning, it simply has been provided, meaning that we can come into God's presence the, the simple fact that we can has been provided for us through Jesus Christ, meaning that we can have confidence that we don't have to go before his presence, God's presence, kind of timid and fearful and ashamed, but we can come with confidence because what Christ has done for us. And Palm Sunday actually starts Jesus's journey to the cross. And I'd like to title this message, if I could, Celebrating the Right Person for the Wrong Reasons. Celebrating the right person for the wrong reasons. Um, funny story. In my 20s, I was known by my family to be somewhat of a self-centered, uh, narcissistic, all-about-me kind of guy. I missed many birthdays, um, a lot of celebrations. I wasn't present. I didn't bring gifts. And, and so around 21, I wanted to kind of break the cycle and... My sister was having her second child, and I got invited to the baby shower, naturally, I'm her brother. And I decided to prepare in advance. I decided to go get my gift, like, it was like a week and a half in advance. I made sure that I marked it on the calendar and was prepared, and the day came for this shower. I showed up, and I remember pulling in my sister's parking lot and seeing pink balloons on the mailbox. And I was like, Ooh, pink balloons, what is that all about? Pink balloons, she's having a boy. Pink balloons, I'm gonna have to pray for this kid. So I walk in to the room, and sure enough, above the mantle, there's, it's a girl, congratulations. And I have a gift with me that I bought for a boy. <laughs> and so I, I, I was celebrating for the right reason, just kind of missed 
the note that she was having a girl and not a boy. This is similar to what's happening here in the story of the triumphal entry. Um, There's a people who gathered around Jesus that day as he's coming into Jerusalem. They're singing Hosanna, Hosanna. They're ecstatic. They're celebrating Jesus. But they're celebrating, celebrating Jesus, excuse me, for the wrong reasons. The wrong reason, are, the reason that they're celebrating Christ is that they're hoping that Jesus will kind of throw off or throw out uh, the Roman occupation. Right now, um, you know, governmentally, uh, Rome is uh, in charge. They're kind of, you know, over Jerusalem. And the people want their sovereignty back. And they're hoping this guy, Jesus, can start this revolution to start the process of kicking Rome out. If you would turn with me to the Gospel of John, it's interesting that all four Gospels talk about this account, um, and that's a rarity. Uh, And I think for us, it's to underscore the importance of the story. And so we're going to actually be reading in uh, John's Gospel, his account of the triumphal entry, starting in verse 12. It says this, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, Just stop right there for a second. What we need to understand is that this event, this triumphal entry, actually happens on the heels of Lazarus, a good friend of Jesus, being raised from the dead. And without getting too much into the story, it was kind of a big deal. And at this time in Jerusalem, there was a lot of... uh, There's a lot of hype surrounding Jesus, given that he was the person who raised Lazarus from the dead. And so Lazarus' resurrection kind of solidified... Jesus is a bona fide, like, Hebrew rock star. Like, you know, when, when, when the gospel says that crowds came around Jesus, I mean, they came. And it wasn't necessarily that, um, you know, they came to, to celebrate Jesus for the right reason. They just had heard this story about this man being raised from the dead. And so they're checking it out. So crowds, thousands of people are coming to see Jesus. We'll pick up our reading again in verse 13. It says this, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king of Israel was there. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written. Now John quotes Zechariah 9.9. It says this, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him, Jesus, and had been done to him. Now, I want to apologize in starting off today's sermon on a bit of a sour note and a bit of Debbie Downer. But Jesus is going into Jerusalem for a reason, friends, and that reason is to die. Let me say that again. Jesus is going into Jerusalem to be Killed. If you don't believe me, well, let's look at Jesus' words here in Mark chapter 10, verse 33 through 34. Here's Jesus saying, Behold, we are going, he's talking to his disciples, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to what? Death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him. And in th- after three days, he will rise. 
So again, Jesus mentions the why he's going into Jerusalem. He makes this crystal clear. Take, for example, in the same chapter, in the same gospel, verse 45. So Mark 10, verse 45, Jesus says this, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and give his life as a ransom for many. Now, Houston, we have a big problem. Jerusalem, there, there's a problem, right? I mean, the people want a militant Messiah, but they get a savior. Keep in mind, they don't want a savior that will deliver them from their eternal threat and uh, consequences of sin and death. They want a savior who will deliver them from the external threats of an occupied Jerusalem. So they get the Jesus they need, not necessarily the Jesus they want. The Jesus they need will save them from their, let's call it, their eternal dilemma, their eternal problem. By his death, Jesus will what? Purchase their, ours, salvation. But they want somebody that will take care of their current problem. Not their eternal problem. Man, that could preach. That really could preach. I mean, I can't help but think I, I, that there's some sim- similarities, excuse me, in the church today. You know, I, I can't help but notice in the church that we kind of live by this model, what have you done for me lately, Jesus? Not what have you already done for me, Jesus? How about he secured your eternity, for starters? How about in Jesus' death, he spared us from the wrath of God? That he, he took on that wrath of God at the cross. How about the Jesus who bore your and my iniquities so that many in the world could be counted or accounted as righteous? How about that Jesus? That's not the Jesus they see. It's not the Jesus they want at this time. They want a Jesus who will meet their immediate needs. Friend, if you ever have a what did you do for me, Jesus moment, I want to encourage you, read Isaiah 53. 12 or 13 verses. Take it and absorb, absorb, and it will give you fresh perspective. You will stop praying those prayers. What have you done for me lately, Jesus? And you, will be, you, you will turn those prayers into thank you, Jesus, for all you've done for me. Failed expectations. That's what's going on in Jerusalem. Sadly and tragically, Jesus fails to meet their expectations, excuse me, their loud voices of praise, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, will turn to murderous chants of crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. It's amazing how quickly things will change for Jesus. In one minute, he's being hailed as the king Right? And shortly after, he's being treated as a criminal, betrayed, arrested, and killed. They wanted someone who would confront the power structures and kick Rome out and secure Jerusalem's sovereignty. 
Yet the only confronting that Jesus would do, it's interesting, the only reform that Christ would bring is in the church. (laughs) I mean, if you follow the story, it's amazing. You know, Jesus doesn't walk up to the governor's mansion, you know. He doesn't go and, and, and start, you know, railing against the government. He goes into the church and starts overturning tables and casting out people out of the church that has turned his father's house into a den of thieves. Read with me Luke's account. Chapter 19, 45 and 46 says this, and he, Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Talk about being let down twice. (laughs) Right? I mean, not only did Jesus not come for war, but he goes into the church and causes trouble. (laughs) I mean, I mean, if I imagine I'm putting myself in the people's shoes, I'm like, what is, you know, what, what is, you got it wrong. We're, you know, we're on your side and you're, you're, what is, why are you coming into our house and causing trouble? Like, go and deal with Rome. Go and kick them out. Work your miracles. Jesus doesn't. He walks into the church. If you don't believe me how rugged Jesus gets, how brutal Jesus gets even, I mean, imagine Jesus walking into Hilltop today, going over to the coffee station, boom, you know, get out of here. You know, imagine that. We would all be like, whoa, what's wrong with this guy? Mark 11, 15 through 17. And they came to Jerusalem. They, being his disciples, came to Jerusalem. And he, Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. So the only reform, the only revolution that Jesus brings is in the church. Picture with me. Shortly after Jesus is strutting on that little mule, that little donkey, he trances himself right up to Jerusalem, the temple, and he picks a fight in the church, driving out money changers, accusing those who've turned his father's house into a den of thieves. But even though Jesus is not a political reformer, so to speak, he certainly become, it certainly becomes clear in the rest of the New Testament and the Gospels that Jesus is the, the Savior that we need. Not just that they needed, but that we need today. I mean, some of those songs we were singing today in worship about our debt being paid, you know, our chains being broken, I mean... I was just overwhelmed by the grace of God. And you know what? This grace starts to unfold massively in the the story of the triumphal entry. This is the day in which Jesus said, I am going to the cross to purchase their freedom. I am going to pay their debts. There's a yes in Jesus. It has little to do with the celebration of the crowds. It has everything to do with Father, not my will, but your will be done. The people miss it. They miss it. 
And I'm going to hopefully show us all by the grace of God, it wasn't just here that they missed it. Even some of those who are closest to Jesus missed it. Jesus wasn't going to take away the sins of the world by giving the people what they want. (laughs) That is, wow. That flies in the, that statement flies in the face of, of, of modern Christianity. So many Christians, give me Jesus, give. Jesus has already given you and I so much, so much. I think John the Baptist sums it up the best in one little verse. You can go there with me, John, again, 129. John the Baptist says this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do you see a Jesus like that today? Do you see a Jesus that has come into your life and has taken away your sins? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus will take and does take away the sins of the world. Uh, But it wouldn't be through political reform, friends. It would be through substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. Do you know what that means? It means Jesus stood in our place. Thank you, God. Thank you. This is what bubbled up in my heart during worship, those songs we picked. Um, I, I just encounter, my heart is just revisiting that Jesus stood in my place. Jesus Christ would die in our place as a substitute for us sinners. Or we can say it like Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So so God takes and places upon Jesus, the man who was perfect, who knew no sin, he places on him the sins of the world so that you and I can stand today and sing songs, let there be light with a clear conscience. (laughs) Let that fuel your faith in your Christianity. God, picture this with me, God treated Jesus as if he, Jesus, was sin itself in the cross. Let me say that again. God treated Jesus as if Jesus was sin itself. Jesus became our sin bearer. He he became our sin bearer on the cross. And we, what? We became the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I want to cry. I've just, my heart is so, let that move us. Let that fuel your lifting of your hands and your worship to Jesus. And you won't won't need to, to, to live in the boredom of, what have you done for me, Jesus? You can live in the excitement of, oh, oh, that you have done for me, Jesus. 
Oh, that our heart, that we can tear up when we think about our salvation. God treated Jesus, a man who knew no sin. He placed our sins on Jesus. What an exchange. I mean, it's like we got a Ferrari for a Yugo. Our sin placed on Jesus. Jesus' righteousness given to us. It's in Christ's death that God fulfills and vindicates his righteousness and then credits it, credits that righteousness to our account. In other words, this is the last thing I'll say about it this morning. And quite honestly, if I was truthful, I couldn't say enough. Matter of fact, I could just one-line it all the way through this sermon about the grace of God, and it would be sufficient. It would be right. It would be fitting. But our sin was placed on Christ, and Christ's righteousness was placed or given, I should say, on us, to us. I want to ask a question, and we're going to bring it to a close here in the next hour and a half. (laughs) But I want, I want to ask you a question. Please don't answer this out loud because that would be awkward. Um, but I'm sure something like this has happened to probably all of us in this room. But has, there ever, has something ever happened to you um, or in your life um, that takes place that is significant, right? I'm sure we can all say, yeah, I've had those moments. But unfortunately, when that something happens, you don't necessarily connect to the significance of that event immediately. Like, there's like, you just think it's like, you know, it's a happening. It's just like, that's just another thing that happened to me. But then down the road, you catch up a little bit, and you're like, wow, that was a, you know, maybe a month or a week down the road, you're like, that was a pretty significant thing. Why wasn't my, why why didn't I see it when it was happening? Did anybody here ever have one of those moments? I've had several, because I'm clueless mainly, and a bit blind, you know, when we're singing, open the eyes of the blind, I'm not, I'm not like, I can see, but I can't see. And so I'm praying for that other part of me that can't always see like it should. But, um, but anybody here, you know, uh, you know, like just over time, it, the significance of that event catches up with you. I noticed something in John's account of the triumphal entry, and I want to see if it might ring true in our hearts and resonate maybe with you today as it did with me as I was studying but in John 12, 16, we read it. We'll read it again. You can put it up on the overhead. John 12, verse 16 says this. Jesus' disciples did not understand these things at first. Let's just let that sing in for a little bit. So, so they didn't understand the events that were happening at first to Jesus, right? That's what John says. He's the only one, actually, in all four accounts that says or uses these words. And so... Jesus' disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So in real time, honestly speaking, as Jesus is entering Jerusalem, his disciples ultimately have no clue. They're not understanding the significance of the moment they're in, okay? Um, the second half of the verse uh, 16, chapter 12, now is referring to everything that happened on Palm Sunday. Yes, true. But it's also 
um, everything that happened after that triumphal entry. Are you tracking with me? So, so what happens after that entry into Jerusalem? Well, Jesus is betrayed, right? I'm imagining that might have been hard to grasp and see the significance of that moment and that, that, that thing that happened. Um, Jesus is arrested, right? That's also something that is happening, you know? And then Jesus is crucified. Matter of fact, it goes all the way, if you want to, to Jesus' resurrection. Because John says that it wasn't until Jesus was glorified that they remembered the things written and the things that had been done to Jesus, right? Are we tracking? So if that's the case, then revelation starts to kick in when Jesus ascends, right? When he's like lifted up. Could you imagine that? That it took all that time. And you can actually see this in kind of the gospel story and kind of the blindness of the disciples and the kind of taken off guard. When all the while, if you, if you look at it, Jesus is open and openly, frequently talking about his betrayal. He is talking about his crucifixion. He is talking about, I mean, we just read it in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. But yet, up until the moment that Jesus was ascending into the clouds, they were clueless. So it, it kind of got me to thinking, what does that word understand mean? Well, I looked it up in the Greek, and it means to become acquainted with or to know in an intimate way. I was like, well, that's pretty interesting. I like that. I like that. So it's, it's almost like they knew, but emotionally, intimately, they were kind of disconnected maybe. Actually, uh, the word understand is a Jewish expression, an idiom for sexual intimacy between a man and a woman. And I think that would um, suggest that there may have been a disconnection emotionally, kind of in the heart the disciples had over uh, the triumphal entry when all that stuff was going on, over Jesus' betrayal. There was no heart connect. There was no kind of like, wow, this is... What's, what's going on, maybe? I don't know exactly, but it wasn't just but a mere five days now until Jesus is arrested and crucified. It's not, again, as if Jesus kept these things secret, right? You would agree with me there, right? He didn't conceal his betrayal. He didn't conceal him being arrested. He didn't conceal his death. He talked about it openly, preached it. It goes to even the point of where Peter's like, hey, Jesus, I'll stand in for you. Like, you're not going to the cross. I'm trying to think of some of the other moments that happened when Jesus was trying to convey these events now that we're talking about today in the triumphal entry story. So I started thinking a little bit about this, under, this word understand and I just, I just put myself in the story. You know, I just threw myself, like if I was one of the 12, I, like where would I, and I track back and look at some of the things that Jesus taught and spoke about when uh, he spoke about his death. And I'm trying to throw my, can I, can I you know, can I connect there? Can I, can I get that emotional connection? And, and, and I started realizing that I really didn't. Like, like my, my mind could go there and I could, read Jesus' words and his teachings about his death and his being arrested and being betrayed, but, but I, I, I couldn't connect in my heart the way I wanted to to the story. 
Ultimately, what I'm saying is I couldn't connect to the emotion of the gospel story. I couldn't connect to throw myself into the story and say, wait a minute, it's, it's me, Jesus, that you did this for. Because honestly, guys, if we track back, there were people in Jesus' camp, meaning they were those 12 people that were very close to Jesus who also wanted to see Jesus deal with Rome. Could you imagine that? That even those who were closest to Jesus fell prey to the, you're going to get rid of this, this, this government, right, that's occupying Jerusalem, right, Jesus? You're going to, like, this is what this is all about. Could you imagine? And you just, you start to take in all that Jesus taught about his mission I mean, you just backtrack all the way back to even when Jesus was going to be baptized. The statement that we, uh, we, we, we brought into focus uh, in John 1, 29, where, where John, in the midst of a large crowd, says, Behold, the Lamb of God who is going to kick Rome out of Jerusalem. Did, did John say that? No. He says, Behold. The Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Friends, I have a concern this morning for the church. I have a concern for this church, actually. And my concern is that we've become a bit callous in our hearts to this story, this powerful story of the gospel. That, that much like the disciples lost their understanding in that they lost their emotional and intimate connection to the gospel story, I can't help but think that is where the church is today. But there's hope. There really is hope. And we can actually see it in the same verse that I read just a couple minutes ago, verse 16 in chapter 12. Let me see if I can get there. Okay. I'm going a little a bit ahead of myself, but you can actually see it start to flush out here. Verse 16, chapter 12. Everybody okay? I know I'm not doing that traditional charismatic thing, yelling at you and, you know, like just trying to do and work to keep your attention. But here it is. There's another word that emerges in verse 16. And I like this word because... It, it helps to bring some practicals. Practicals to when my heart becomes callous about the story. You know, my heart is not moved like it should be when it comes to the story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Well, here it is. This word, remember, emerges in verse 16. Right, right? So, John 12, 16, his disciples did not understand these things first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered. What did Jesus say to his disciples when they were eating that last supper? What, what, it, what was the whole context? What were some of the things? Well, I have it here just in case you don't remember. Sorry. But in Luke chapter 22, 17, through 21, let's read what Jesus says here. And he, Jesus, took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this cup, divide it among yourselves. 
For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the wine until the kingdom of God comes. He, Jesus, took the bread and then when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body that's given to you. Do what? Do this in remembrance of me. Could could it be that we, the church, need to do more of this right here? Do, 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 Do we, the church, need to engage our minds and have not conversation how to become the better you, the more prosperous you, you know? I mean, I'm all in for self-help. I, 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 listen, I'm all in for self-improvement. I am, and I, I believe that the gospel is powerful, that the, the message of this book is powerful to transform my life and make me a better me. But I also know that in the throes of trying to find a better me, I can forget a person of whom 90% of this book is all about. And you know what? It doesn't take Easter to do this. I love it. We actually like applaud and like, oh, and I do it myself. So listen, I'm not throwing you under the bus, but you know, like, I, I, I live by this slogan, Easter Sunday, every Sunday. There, there's something to celebrate. It's not just next Sunday the 21st. It's not just here in Palm Sunday. There is an eternal hope that we've been given in Christ Jesus that should fuel our excitement. And if you lose that fuel, then remember. Do this in remembrance. Why does Jesus do this? I I happen to believe that he knows they will forget. Matter of fact, they do. Why? Because John says that they did not understand. So there was part of this story that they lost that connection to. And how much more? If they saw the living word, they saw Jesus Christ. How much more? They forgot. How much more is it important for us to live in that constant tension of not just on Easter, God, help me remember. I don't need straighter hair. I don't need a bigger bank account, a better job. I don't need those things. They're great if they happen. Fine, wonderful. But I don't need it. What I need is salvation. I need to know the Savior. I'm sorry I'm yelling. I know that might scare some of you. But it's who I am. It's who I am. (laughs) Jesus has given us a week. He's given us more than a week. Honestly, we have this tradition, right? Holy Week, Lent, and I love it. Like, I'm in the throes of it. But Jesus wants us in the constant state of reflection. When your heart gets cold and you think you need to go to the next conference to get all fueled up, just to, just to keep you for a week or two, you really don't. You just have to remember. See, all I did in this seat for my heart to be revived is just Remember. The songs we were singing, quickly registering. Oh, wait, it was my debt that was paid. Oh, 
oh, I, <laughs> I know me. I, I, I got a big debt, <laughs> you know. I, I, got a, I, I need someone who is big enough to forgive that debt. Like, like if, if we boiled this down to money, I'd, I'd be like $3 million in the hole, maybe more. So I need something big. And, and I'm sitting here in this role, and I'm singing this song, and I'm thinking, oh, my chains are broken. My, I'm free. Oh, yeah, Mike, that's right. And the gospel story just begins to pour over my mind and in my heart. And suddenly, I'm like this new man. Because <laughs> not only am I very grateful, but there's something of a fire that starts to bubble up. Oh, God, you did this for me? Because ultimately, God did do this for us in his son, Christ Jesus. God, God put himself. God put God on the cross so that we could be free, so that we could be forgiven, so that our debt could be paid. And friend, that is what is supposed to fuel our Christianity. Not conferences, love them. Not best-selling books, love them. Not prophecy, love it. Jesus. Jesus. That's what fuels real faith. And so Jesus has given us this week to remember and to reconnect emotionally, emotionally, not just intellectually, but emotionally, intimately with the story of our redemption, the gospel. It's going to be a great week. I pray that you don't squander it. I pray that you're there, Good Friday, celebrating with us the day in which Jesus died. I pray that you're here with us Sunday celebrating the resurrection because apart from the resurrection, our faith would be nothing. We would be a pitied group of people the, to be pitied above all if Jesus never ascended, right? That's what Paul teaches. So I hope you're here with us. But you know what? <laughs> I hope that that keeps you enough to next Sunday. The beginning of next month when there's no Holy Week, when there's no Resurrection Sunday, when there's no Palm Sunday, I pray that you're here celebrating the same message, overcome and overwhelmed by the same God who paid such a price so that you can lift your hands, sing your songs with confidence and without shame or guilt. Oh man, God is good. So who is Jesus to you this morning? That's really the question we need to ask ourselves on Palm Sunday. See, it's so easy to put Jesus in a box, right? And I'm not just talking about to cap him, but to kind of create a God, a Jesus, who doesn't exist. That's, that's what the people who surrounded Jesus on Palm Sunday did. They, they started to create this Jesus who wasn't this Jesus who isn't 
that Jesus. And they become shocked when Jesus doesn't meet their expectations, shocked to the point where they're willing to now go from praise to hatred and chanting, crucify him. We can see ourselves in this story today. We can see ourselves as those people who quickly change on Jesus when Jesus isn't for us, what we think Jesus should be for us. But there's hope. Do this in remembrance of me. If you came in this morning and you got a little, I don't know what to call those, a little cab or, thank you, yeah, if I could take yours. Nobody gives the pastor uh, that little, little bowl here. I think it's appropriate after this sermon to do just that, right? Because essentially after Palm Sunday, we're going to enter in to the week in which Jesus is betrayed and arrested and put to death. So as we start the music, we're going to take communion together in remembrance of what Christ has done for us. If you don't have one of these little things of grape juice, and I don't even wafer, um, raise your hand, our ushers will get you one. But can we just take a minute before we just rush into partaking of the elements, can we just close our eyes and just say, God, who is Jesus to me? Who have I made Jesus to be? I've prayed this prayer many a times, and I'm always shocked and somewhat surprised by what I hear and what I get back. And so this, this may be an opportunity for us to just realign ourselves with who Christ really is. And so with every eye closed and every heart bowed, I just want you to pray that simple prayer and then we'll take communion.
Jesus, this morning, we take this bread and we take this drink, Lord, in remembrance of this new covenant that you've made with us. Jesus, we know that this represents your blood that was poured out and your body that was broken for our sins, not our neighbor's sins, not the world's sins in the sense that we would escape the thought of thinking we're sinners. But God, I thank you that it's my sin, that it's our sin you've forgiven. So Jesus, we do this. We do this act in remembrance of you.
Come on, church. Thank you for the cross. I thank you for the cross, my friend. Yeah. I thank you for the cross. I thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross. again once again I look upon the cross where you died I'm humbled by your mercy and I'm broken inside once again I thank you once again I poured out my life <laughs> thank you God It would be foolish for me to assume that everybody here is saved and that you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and has made Jesus your Lord and Savior. That would be foolish of me. And so I want to give an opportunity to place before you the greatest gift ever given to humanity, and that is the gift of salvation. Much of what I have talked about today, if you're not saved, probably makes no sense to you, but maybe, just maybe something resonates in the, this, is that you do know that you're a sinner. And in knowing that you are a sinner, you need grace, a great grace, a grace that is given to you by your heavenly Father in Christ Jesus. And so, if that is you, if you're desiring this grace, if you're thinking to yourself, I want that, I want to be forgiven like that, then I want to give the opportunity for you to be forgiven like that and pray with you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. So if you're here, with every eye closed, please, at this time. Three people gave their heart to Jesus last Sunday. And I just happen to believe there may be more here in this room this morning that would like to put their faith in Jesus. We're not going to make much of this because we already did in the sermon. <laughs> but if you want that, if you want God's free gift of righteousness and forgiveness for your sin, I would like to pray for you this morning. If that's you, just raise your hands to the sky just so we can see them and then you can put them down with every eye closed, nobody's looking. This isn't a time when we observe and see who's saved and who's not. But if that's you in this room and you're saying, I want, I want to put my faith in Jesus Christ, then put your hands right up to the sky.
I think I see your hand back there. You can put it down. Father, we thank you for this morning. (laughs) Thank you for the opportunity to make much of your son, Jesus Christ, and the story of the gospel. Lord, let us always make much of Jesus Christ and the story of the gospel. Father, we pray, Lord, that this week you would keep us. Jesus, we pray, Lord, that this week if we find that our hearts are lacking fire, if we find that our hearts are lacking zeal and passion, Lord, we ask that we would go to this story. Lord, we ask that this week we would take time to reflect and remember what Christ has done for us. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, church, for letting me yell at you this morning. Hopefully it blessed you as it blessed me. Um, with that being said, want to just, again, turn your attention to some exciting things happening this week. Um, would love for you all to join us at Good Friday with Aletheia and Pentecostal Tabernacle as we celebrate together and remember the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And then, obviously, for Resurrection Sunday, hey, listen, bring a friend um, with you. Don't come alone. There's going to be a lot of exciting things, and we're going to do... Uh, we're going to have another go of making much of Jesus and the story of his death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, with that being said, also, the prayer room's open this week for times of reflection, taking communion, and just praying together. Other than that, church, we love you. Listen, if you raised your hand... For prayer, I'd like to, after we dismiss, I will be right here. You can come, and I would like to talk to you for a few minutes and pray for you. Other than that, church, have a great day. Love God and love one another, and we'll see you next Sunday. Be blessed.